For this episode of Coffee with Closers, I'm sitting down with John Miller, the current CMO of Demandbase. Prior to that, John co-founded Marketo, which was acquired by Adobe for $4.8 billion. Then he went on to co-found Engageo, a B2B marketing engagement platform that was acquired by Demandbase. John is a speaker and a writer of marketing best practices, and he's the author of multiple marketing books and was named the most influential marketing CEO of the year by Corporate Excellence Awards in 2019. Stay tuned for my conversation with John, where he shares practical advice for marketers and business leaders about how to create the best account-based experience for your customers. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Coffee with Closers, where business leaders share insights on how to build businesses from the ground up and best practices for innovating in their industry. Hey, John, I'm super excited to have you join me for this episode of Coffee with Closers. Yeah, thanks. Always great to chat. Yeah, most certainly. I met you a while back. I don't know if you recall. Uh, you were actually doing a road show with the Terminus team. Uh, it was basically the, the the birth of ABM, right? You were flip the funnel conference, flip the funnel road trip. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if you remember. You were in Chicago. That had to be at least ten years now, maybe close to like ten years, I suppose. No, well, we started Engageo back in 2015, so that probably would have been 2016 or 2017 when that happened. Yeah, so quite quite a while back. Um, so uh, it's been a, a crazy journey. So I don't know how many people actually know you have an interesting story of how you went from going to school in Harvard, getting a physics degree, and then ending up as the pioneer in con- you know marketing and starting a martech company, uh, Marketo. So can you share with our audience a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey and how it all got started? Sure. Yeah. So you know, I mean, growing up, my my mom was a school teacher. My dad was a lawyer, and I, I just didn't really have much exposure to the world of business. Uh, and I like science, and so I, I sort of studied physics, and you know, got a summer job at the Lawrence Livermore National Labs, which was kind of cool. I had a the D, uh, Department of Energy's version of a top secret clearance, um, and I just thought I'd go into academia because that's sort of what but people I knew did, you know, and, you know, it, I, I remember though my senior year of college, it seemed like everybody was doing like the recruiting thing and interviewing at investment banks or consulting firms. And I, I hadn't really loved my summer at Lawrence Livermore. And I didn't really think that the, when I looked at the lives the physicists were having, it didn't seem like that was such an amazing lifestyle. And so I, I got into a PhD program, but they were kind enough to let me defer it for a year. And then I went through like that whole recruiting thing and ended up getting a job at a management consulting firm, which, you know, I, I quickly kind of ended up at a, you know, at a firm that was kind of specializing in what today we'd call kind of CRM or customer relationship management consulting, not the technology, but the business strategy. How do I use data and intelligence to make better decisions around my customers? And this firm called Exchange Partners, the the founder and the CEO realized that some of our customers couldn't implement the technology that, or sorry, couldn't implement the recommendations we were having because the technology wasn't there to -hmm. support it. And so they, um, he actually went and bought like a, an old marketing tech firm, mm-hmm. uh, which then they paid to kind of migrate to client server off of mainframe. 
that company became successful and ultimately spun out as its own company that had an IPO called, mm. called Exchange Applications or eventually just Exchange. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, Exchange was like the leading marketing technology of the mid 90s. Mm. So, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I went to grad school for business. And when I was coming out of that, you know, rather than, I mean, this was 1999. So rather than just more business or more consulting, I was like, huh, maybe, maybe I should do what everybody else is doing and get into technology. And I was kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I was interviewing at some different firms. But I ended up having some conversations with Phil Fernandez, who was at Epiphany, who was my boss's boss back from Epiphany. Mm -hmm. But we started talking about marketing tech. We uh, realized we both shared a vision that there was an opportunity for a new generation of marketing technology. Software as a service was becoming mainstream, but wasn't quite mainstream. It wasn't like 100% yet. Mm -hmm. And what we realized is that, you know, marketing technology had always been held back because it was, it was a capital investment. You had to buy software like Epiphany and implement it. And it was a half million dollars before you saw any value. And people don't do capital investments to support a cost center like marketing. But SaaS enabled us to deliver a marketing product that a marketer could buy the same way that they buy their Google ad spend or a trade show out of the program dollars. And, and that was the big idea of Marketo was this like economic model of, of, of selling MarTech that was just easy to buy and easy to own and easy to use. So obviously, John, you've accomplished a lot, right? You, uh, you started Mercado, you took it public, uh, and obviously the company was acquired much later by Adobe for, I think it was like $4.3 billion or something. Then you went down and started with a new company. You've written, written a lot of content. You've spoken at a lot of conferences. Um, so a lot of success uh, under your belt. Of all the things you've accomplished, what's the one thing that you're super proud of? I'm very proud of how... At Marketo and even beyond, you know, I've I've really helped people define their careers. You know, if, so first, if I'd look at people who like just out in the ecosystem, you know, when I hear stories of you know uh, uh, someone going from being the office manager to they learned Marketo and now they're a director of marketing operations, like like Marketo made their career for them. Like I, I love stories like that. You know, and then if I even just look at my the marketing team I had back at Marketo, and I mean, so many of those people have gone on and are CMOs today. This incredible group of marketers that we were able to hire, and I mean, they they were amazing in and of themselves. But then I think just the experience of working at Marketo did help kind of accelerate careers. Yeah, most certainly. And I think, you know, you give them a, a platform where they were able to exercise their their skills and then really learn as a fast company, right? In a fast company, learning all the practical execution strategies and, and then being able to apply somewhere else for sure. So obviously, I'm sure you've learned a lot of lessons in the process of building a company, right? Taking a company from just in, its infancy to taking it public uh, and then now having to do it again uh, at Engageo and now going through a merger with demand base. There's so many things you've uh, you've done in your career. 
So what, what are some biggest lessons you've learned as an entrepreneur from some of these um, big initiatives that you've undertaken? You know, one of the things I learned from my time at Marketo is that, you know, I actually love being an entrepreneur. Uh, and I mean, part of the reason I left Marketo ultimately to start Engageo was sort of, I missed some of that building of the small company. I mean, when Marketo got to feel like a job and not my baby anymore, you know, that's sort of when I realized it was time to kind of go and, you know, start something else. So, you know, I'm very happy as a CMO of Demandbase right now, but my career path isn't CMO, CMO, right? My career path mm -hmm. is to sort of, be, you know, be, be a founder and entrepreneur. You know, in terms of lessons, I think, um, I mean, one, I, I've, I've definitely learned interesting lessons along the way about just fundraising strategy. You know, at mm -hmm. Marketo, we, we got very diluted. Um, you know, mm -hmm. we, we, we went, we raised venture money too early. Uh, and as a result, had to give away too much of the company. It's you know mm -hmm. sort of sad that I founded a company and went on to be public and as successful as it was. And even though I'm very comfortable, I'm also not <laughs> sitting on a beach retired mm -hmm. uh, beca because of some mm -hmm. of that dilution. And so at, at Engageo, I sort of took a different strategy and I sort of built on my success for Marketo and I raised a much, much better, more attractive terms. But in some ways, I raised that too high evaluation that it was hard to ever grow into those lofty expectations. You know, and so I think one of my lessons learned is, just, you know, as in most things in life, that right balance is super important. You know, not don't go too much on any extreme when it comes to your fundraising strategy. Um. So that, that's definitely, a, I think, a, a fundraising lesson. Another one I'll point out is, you know, in many ways, I think Marketo was successful despite its culture. We didn't work very hard mm -hmm. to define a company culture for Marketo. We just happened to have an amazing product in a really good category with strong product market mm -hmm. fit. And that, <laughs> that solved a lot of ills. Mm -hmm. um, Engage you. Mm -hmm. I was much more deliberate about culture, and Demand Base is also a company that's very deliberate about culture and being, you know, being a great place to work. That all, that not mm -hmm. only makes it more fun on the journey, but I also do think it, in the end it creates more resilient companies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the early two thousand, the company culture wasn't like a big thing. Right now, in the late twenty, you know, two thousand, it became a big thing for people, especially. We're trying to attract good talent, right? Because I think the, the competition for talent became such a big, uh, big thing that you had to differentiate your company with its culture more than just compensation because every company is offering amazing compensation packages, right? So that wasn't enough to attract talent. Um, and I'm not saying culture was never an issue, but I think it became even more of a big reason for people. Yeah, and I think attract and retain. I mean... <clears throat> Mark, people stayed at Marketo because Marketo was successful, right? And people were like excited for an IPO. And then once the IPO happened, what was like, what's the reason for sticking around anymore? You know, there was no, I think you have to have a deeper purpose and mission. Um, just, yeah, because, you know, ultimately that, you know, people want that. They don't just want the paycheck. 
most certainly. So did you, like like Stephen Covey's book, you know, like the, the Seven Habits of the high, Highly Effective People, did you start with the end in mind when you actually started uh, Marketo? Like, hey, my goal is to build a company and exit uh, with uh, with IP or, or through an acquisition. Did you have some sort of a framework in mind? Uh, definitely not. And by the way, that's I would not advise an entrepreneur to, to, be, do, to be doing that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you... you being an entrepreneur is too, there's too much that has to happen. I'm not going to say too hard. I'm just going to say there's too much that has to happen that if you're only motivated by the exit, you're not going to be successful. I'm motivated to build an amazing marketing platform. Um, for whatever reason, go back to my ex-physics days. You know, I believe that technology can help us create better experiences with our customers. Um, and I want to be part of making that happen. I want to be part of changing industries like I've done somewhat and I want to keep doing that. That's what motivates me. And ultimately, that's what motivated me to merge Engageo and Demandbase. You know, I, I, I was things were going fine at Engageo um, despite COVID and all that. I mean, we, we could have kept running Engageo as a standalone business, but I got convinced that the combination of Engageo plus demand base would be the market transforming platform. That was my motivation. So it's, mm-hmm. it's about, it's about having that goal in mind of, of, uh, for me building that amazing marketing platform. Yeah. That's the, that's the why, right? So the, the driver cannot just be, Oh, I need to make more money. And I think if you have a, a true why behind what, what you're doing, that I, I think that will keep you moving even when, you know, things aren't always, you know, going, yeah. going perfect. So let's talk a little bit about some marketing strategy, right? So obviously you've probably seen the marketing, like the buyer's journey evolved a lot, right? When you said, when you started Marketo, you wanted to be doing marketing and selling in the way that you want to be sold. Uh, but I think even that was inbound, it was its, I think the inbound marketing was its infancy in the early days of, you know, early 2000, right? Uh, I think Google was taking momentum. You were talking about how Google ads, you know, building a platform that would help manage Google ads. All of those things were just coming into market, but obviously you've seen the entire marketing industry evolve in the last, you know, 20 some years or so. Right. So how has the buyer's journey from your perspective evolved? Yeah, I guess I'll I'll share two thoughts on that. You know, the first Mm -hmm. is um, I I want to talk about the rise of account based marketing um, as part of the buyer's journey. I mean, because I mean, I mentioned that Marketo, I marketed the way I wanted to be marketed too. But that, 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 and that was sort of what I would call fishing with a net, right? Companies put out their campaigns and see who you catch and you, you, you catch the ones that are good. And as long as you catch enough, you're happy. But, you know, even, you know, at Marketo and, and beyond, I mean, not every company you want to sell to was swimming into the net. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so we started doing, account-based marketing, fishing with a spear, finding those big fish and kind of going after them proactively. The problem though, is that the way those early account-based marketing programs worked, they didn't have that respect for the buyer experience, right? I mean, it was fishing with a spear. They were reaching out and poking people who may not be interested in talking to them. Um, And so I think what, one of the things that sort of really evolved in the buyer's journey 
you know, is companies have gotten a lot smarter about how can you take that precision and targeting that account-based marketing has and combine it with the respect for the buyer experience that traditional demand gen or inbound had. And that's ultimately what I've called account-based experience, trying to distinguish that from account-based marketing. Um, cause it's that respect for the buyer's experience. And also it doesn't have the word marketing in the title. So it recognizes that it's for salespeople, not just marketers. Um, mm-hmm. and so, so I think one big trend has been sort of this, the rise of, of, of the account-based experience, um, as a way to sort of align how you market to a company to mm-hmm. where the, that account is in its journey. And mm-hmm. you know, when they're early, you wanna be focused on education and, and building a brand. When they're moving into a buying cycle, you wanna be more aggressive. And it's about balancing the, you know, and finding the right piece of that. Mm-hmm. And that I think leads me to my, the second big trend, um, which is just, frankly, all the new kinds of data that are becoming available and, and the changes in the kind of intelligence that we have access to. You know, in the Marketo days, marketing automation days, people talked about digital body language and, and scoring, right? The ability to sort of track what web pages somebody goes to and what emails they open uh, as a way to sort of see who's interested and who's hot and who's not. And increasingly... I think buyers are because they don't want to get poked by a spear. You know, they, you know, they are increasingly trying to be anonymous. They don't fill out forms unless they have to, you know, they're doing research not on your website, but out kind of on the open web. Um, And as a result, we've seen the rise of, you know, the, the need for new kinds of data, things like intent data, you know, intent data is effectively digital body language, but for off the website. You know, what topics are, are companies reading and surging on? Uh, and that's really important to get that account-based experience right, to kind of reach out at the right time. Um, technographic data has become pretty important for technology companies. You know, knowing what technologies a company uses can actually tell you a lot about whether they're a good fit for you, but it also tells you probably what technology they might buy next because companies buy technologies in predictable patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and even just, just contact data, you know, I mean, there's just, just back in the Marketo days, you sort of waited around for somebody to fill out, you know, your form before you knew who they were. Now we actually can go and identify who are the people we should be talking to. That doesn't mean we should start spamming them, but we should know who they are. We should know, Mm -hmm. do we have connections to them? And so all that stuff together, you know, it forms what I'm calling just account intelligence. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, I I think it's increasingly really important that companies think about what is their account intelligence strategy. So that way they can be smarter about how they are interacting with their customers, know where their customers are on their journey, how they can kind of coordinate, et cetera. 
Yeah, so obviously people hear a lot about ABM, right? ABM and ABM, you know, like you said, the account-based experience, all of those things are, you know, hot topics and, you know, jargons that we hear a lot. So do you think the the traditional demand gen strategy of cre- creating good content and then peppering that all over the web, getting people to consume that, and then getting to become aware of your product offering and your business as a, as a process of it, and getting them to continue to, you know, visit the website, can convert into inquiry, that model, you think that's going away? Uh, or you think that still has some place in terms of leveraging that to, um, you know, drive drive demand for your product offering or services? Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think it's going away. I mean, I mean, what you just mm-hmm. described is what I call fishing with nets. Okay. You know, and and there will always be a time and place where fishing with nets is appropriate. Mm-hmm. You know, and in particular, it's appropriate for deals that are under say thirty thousand dollars a year. You know, mm-hmm. and if, if, if that's your deal size, if you're ten to thirty thousand dollars, you should fish with nets all day long. Um, even if you have bigger deals, maybe your deals start at twenty thousand dollars. And if so, you net fishing should still be part of your strategy. So it's it's about it's not it's not an either or. It's about a spectrum of styles and using the right style for your business. Um. I do think the kinds of content that people engage with is changing, right? You've mentioned my books a couple times. Um, and, you know, the book I wrote last year, The Clearing Company Guide to Account-Based Experience, which I just updated to be the new version. So now it's called The Clearing Company Guide to Smarter Go-To-Market. Mm-hmm. That remains the number one piece of content for demand base in terms of creating pipeline and you know, real impact on, on our customers. But I will say a big piece of written content like that, while still valuable, it's, it's not, what we're finding is that people want to exp- engage with their content in other ways too. You know, re- reading the book is just one, one form. You know, we're here on a podcast that people might consume by listening or by watching a video. We've at Demandbase, we've invested a lot in video as an engagement channel. We we created something that we call DBTV, which we launched before Salesforce launched their TV channel. So we believe it, it was the first B2B streaming site. Um, and it's kind of like Netflix for B2B. We have eight or nine different shows and you can go in and stream all sorts of different B2B related content. So... Yeah, the net fishing still applies. You know, video is more important than ever. It's a mix of it's a mix of media that's right for different people. Most certainly. And I think when you talk about mostly enterprise deals and you're talking about the addressable market being much smaller and you can only sell to let's say a thousand companies uh, in the whole world, then I think what you're talking about even become more efficient way to reach those customers as well, right? Because hey, you don't need the entire web to read all your content pieces. You don't need the entire you know, world to know about all your offerings. Uh, you really want only the hyper-targeted uh, personas within a certain company or a division to really consume and ne- know that you exist as well. Yep. The larger your deals, the more focused your ICP, the more you'll be spears versus nets. But again, I think it's the spectrum. Most certainly. So where do you think the ABM and the account-based experience is headed um, as, we, as we see this, you know, privacy things becoming more and more increasingly more uh, you know, tightened uh, by all these different devices and things of that nature. Where do you think that's headed? Yep. 
Well, I mentioned account intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, and regardless of whether you're practicing a spear phishing account-based marketing motion or a demand gen motion or a hybrid, I do think just having account intelligence is increasingly important. Having data about the accounts in your market and the contacts at those accounts and what technologies those companies have and who is showing intent, you know, and then combining that with your first party data, ultimately, I think that that account intelligence foundation is, it's critical and you see it happening. You know, you see vendors like Demandbase and Sixth Sense buying data providers. Mm -hmm. You see data providers like ZoomInfo entering the ABM space. Mm -hmm. So we're really starting to see this convergence between ABM and, and data driven by this importance of account intelligence. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned privacy. That I think really has two main factors to it that are important here. You know, the first one is, you know, and everybody talks about this, it makes first party data all the more important. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to make sure you've got really good access and be able to take your data and understand it and synthesize it and segment it, and then use your first party data to activate your advertising, whether it's over Facebook or LinkedIn or display. The other re thing that I think is important is when we're talking about account intelligence, 95% or 98% of the time, we're talking about account level data. And account level data doesn't raise privacy concerns. Um, privacy concerns are related to individual people and contacts. And so one of the magics of account intelligence is that that data is gonna still be available even if we crack down on person level data. Mm -hmm. So my question is obviously with this hybrid working model, right? Everybody's kind of working, you know, some people are back in the office, but they're still working from home. How is, how are we still confidently say that we have the accurate information about the intent data uh, is, is confident, you know, we can trust in that data. Like, because if people are working from their home IPs and then they may be back at their office working from a computer at the office, the com you know company IP. Where, so I mean, what you're getting at is is what's known as account identification. Um, you know, in order to personalize to the account or analyze account engagement or derive intent data, you do need the ability to sort of take. Hey, there's a person on a web page. You need to be able to know that person. Well, they work for this company. You don't know who the person is, but you know the company. And then you need to, be able to analyze the content of the page to figure out what it is they're reading about. So ultimately, how do you do account identification? If you go back far enough in time, the main way people did that was with IP addresses, right? And you could go to the IP registry and see that, that you know, Microsoft owns this particular IP. So if you see somebody from that IP, they probably work for Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Now that didn't work for mid-sized businesses and small businesses and, and there were a whole bunch of other problems with it. And so, and then the real problem happened with COVID, right? We all started working from home. Mm -hmm. We don't, those IP addresses don't tie to the company anymore. But fortunately we also have access to cookie data. Mm -hmm. And you know, the cookies and the IPs work together very synergistically. 
you know, somebody, if we see a person and, you know, the IP maps to a business, great, we're done. We know that IP maps to a business. Maybe it doesn't map to a business, but we see the cookie. Mm -hmm. And we're able to see, well, that cookie maps to the business. We can do two things. One, we can identify them. But two, we can now update our database to see that IP, which might have been your home IP address, now ties to that business. So we've up, you know, so even if some say a year from now, you've cleared your cookie or your cookie your has gone away, we've still learned that that IP is, you know, that home IP ties to a business. So these two things work together very hand in hand. We've actually seen a demand base. Our account identification rates have gone up dramatically post COVID than pre COVID. Hmm. Um, not just because, you know, but we've done a lot of other things, but we've, we've been able to respond to the work from home. No problem. Yeah. You would think the, you would think the opposite because you had more and more people working remotely that it would only make it difficult to, tr you know, track and identify the, it, it, it did drop a little bit when COVID first started, but mm -hmm. then we, you know, we worked hard on it and we got access to more data and more insights and we did more machine learning and we've ultimately are now tracking higher than we did ever, than ever higher than we've had forever. So can you talk a little bit about the Zengageo demand base? Uh, what does that merger means uh, in the MarTech world as well as uh, what does that mean for marketers in terms of what, uh, what power does it provide marketers to do? Yeah, I mean, I alluded to it just a little bit earlier when I said, you know, my 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 why was to build the greatest marketing platform. <clears throat> you know, Engageo historically was really strong at first party data and orchestration. Demandbase was really strong at third party data like intent and advertising. So the combination was you know, really the best in class ABM platform uh, across kind of every dimension, which by the way was validated recently. Gartner came out with their first magic quadrant for ABM platforms. It's, it was the first analyst report that came out post engage demand based merger and demand base was ranked exactly where we'd want to be um, in the leader quadrant. So I think, you know, that just validated the strategy of kind of combining these platforms, you know, demand base. We haven't sat still though. We've really, um, continued to invest in building out our solution in particular going beyond just what we call demand base one, which was merging demand base and engage together. But we've, we've, uh, you know, we're really doubling down in that accounts intelligence. You know, as I said, the account identification is better than it ever has been. We acquired a company for tech, a leading company for technographics. So that installed based technologies. Mm -hmm. We're now, as far as I can tell, the number two provider of contact data to B2B businesses. Zoom Info obviously still tends to be number one there, but lots of companies buy their contacts from us and you know, so we've, we've really played out a lot more on the data side as well. That's awesome to hear. So obviously, John, I've known you in terms of from a, from a consumption of content and information around marketing. Your name was always uh, on every ebook that ever Marketo put out. And even when you started Engageo, you had the definitive guide to, I think it was ABM, uh, one of the pieces I think you, you put out. Um, so you've been, you've somehow found a way to really be in the forefront, right? Being a thought leader in, in that, um, in that specific, specific category. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of leadership, right? 
who's behind the scene, but never really take a step, you know, an active step in being uh, kind of a thought leader for the organization. What advice do you have for executive leadership, right? What do they need to do to proactively putting out a lot of good quality content that educates the market and sets the tone for, you know, buying criteria or whatnot? It's easier said than done. Um, and I, I don't want to like convey I've got any sort of magical skills. You know, what I have is a passion for teaching. As I said, my at the very beginning, my mom was a teacher. I come from a family of educators. I think it's really hard for somebody to be great at producing content and thought leadership if they don't have that kind of passion for teaching at their core. Um, you know, th there's got to be something that's driving the motivation to, to create the thought leadership and content that goes beyond just, gosh, this is good for my company. Um, you know, may, maybe you're, you're really trying to build your personal brand. I think I've seen that be a good motivator. So, so to the extent that you can develop it, develop a passion for teaching. Mm. Um, the other thing I'll throw out there is, you know, I, personally, I think my skill is not thought leadership, but synthesis. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I'm, I'm good at learning and absorbing from a lot of different places and then combining it together into something that maybe sounds like thought leadership, but is really mostly, I think, just synthesizing a bunch of other data points into something. Mm -hmm. I think people can develop that synthesis skill. You know, like just read a lot, stick all your notes into a Google Doc, start to organize them, keep reading. When you, when you find that like everything you read you've got kind of covered somewhere in the outline already, <clears throat> you know, that sort of way, you know, okay, I've, I've, I'm started hitting saturation point. Um, <clears throat> you know, I've, 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 I've filled the space if you will. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, today's marketing is education, right? Because I think you're leading with education and, and the best way to sell is by helping, uh, right. By helping you are obviously helping them to solve their business challenge and ultimately they will, buy from you if your product is superior to whatever the alternative is. So obviously, I'm sure, John, you've learned a lot. Um, looking back, you probably could have done a lot of things differently. But knowing what you know today, what advice would you give your younger self? Uh, well, the generic advice I always share, um, and I would share with my younger self, you know, is also, you know, things are never as good as they seem when things seem good. And they're never as bad as they seem when things seem bad. Um, and I think that's, that's just pretty obvious to say, but it's really important advice to live by, you know, when times are hard and, you know, you think they're terrible, just remember it's not, it's not actually as bad as you think, but the flip side is also true when everything's going great and you think you're on top of the world, just remember that's not going to last either and just kind of help, help figure some of that out. Awesome. Well, a great, uh, great thought to end our conversation. And I certainly appreciate your time, John. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you. This episode of Coffee with Closers is brought to you by One IMS, a leading digital marketing agency helping businesses win new customers. To request a free marketing ROI audit, please visit oneims.com. If you enjoyed this video, please share it. To make sure you never miss an episode, please subscribe.